Morning, church. It's good to be with you as a people loved by God more than we could possibly imagine. His love for us extended even back in eternity past when nothing existed except God himself, and so we are a well-loved people this morning. Well, I want to begin by saying um, that I don't know how much you know about the false gospel of modern feminism. But I want you to know that, that feminism has made many promises that it cannot possibly deliver. Let's put it this way. Modern feminism, it has a gospel. It has its own salvation message of freedom and liberation and happiness and satisfaction, but because it cannot possibly deliver what it promises, the gospel of modern feminism is, for all intents and purposes, a false gospel. Now, when I say feminism, I am not talking about people's attempts to ensure right and fair and equal treatment for women. I'm not talking about that because that's good and that's right and that's in the Bible. No one disagrees with that. I mean, men and women are equally created by God in his own image and likeness. They have equal dignity being created in his image. No one disputes that. Let's get that on the table right now. Men and women are absolutely equal. And yet with all the troubling flaws of feminism, and trust me, there are many, I think I get what feminism is after. I mean, I, mean, I think I get in one sense what feminism is trying to do. Namely, I think feminism wants everyone to know that women can and should make equally significant contributions as men to change the world. I think feminism wants people to know in one sense, they want to drive home the message that women are perfectly capable, in fact, just as capable to make a profound impact in the world. And the thing of it is, no one disputes that. No one disagrees with that. Again, that is good, and that is right, and that is in the Bible. We have verses for that. The point of contention, however, with feminism is that feminism says that women can, have, can find ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction outside of the roles designed for them by God. The fatal flaw of feminism is that what it's missed in its attempts to make women significant are the very things that give women their deepest significance. Because what I'm saying is women were designed to change the world to be sure, but the roles given to them by God were never ever designed to constrain them, but only to free them and liberate them to be who God created them to be. And speaking of women who make an impact not just in the world, but even for eternity, that's exactly what we find in Titus chapter 2. One of the most strategic and practical chapters in the entire New Testament. And the reason why it's so practical and strategic is because what Paul is doing is unfolding a strategy, a game plan for great commission significance. In other words, what Paul is doing in Titus chapter 2 is unfolding a personalized game plan for how each group of people in the church can maximize their effectiveness for the Great Commission. And in Titus chapter 2, Paul identifies five groups of people. Older men, 
older women, young women, young men, and slaves. And he, he tells Titus how each one of those groups in particular can make a particular impact for the Great Commission. You see, in other words, what, what Titus is doing, what Paul is doing in Titus is giving them a personalized game plan. And last week we saw the first group on the list, which was older men. And this week, the second group on the list is older women. That is the more seasoned female veterans of the faith, 50-ish and up, I just want you to know you are in the text. Which means Christ has something for you. He profoundly cares about you and your great commission significance. You see this morning, Paul lays out for Titus and for you a personalized game plan for how you can help make this church a healthy church that changes the world, which is exactly why Titus is in your Bibles, isn't it? We all know that what Titus is, is the blueprints for a healthy church. And what we learn from Titus 2 is that one of the things you need for a healthy church is when men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, young and old, fulfill their God-ordained roles in the church. Like I put it last week, if we're going to be NASA, and if we're going to reach the moon, as it were, then everybody at NASA has to know what the mission is, and everybody has to know what their calling is. And believe it or not, what each of your particular callings are, what God is calling you to be in this, in this global mission called the Great Commission is all found in Titus chapter 2. So to the older women of this church, I just, I just want you to know Christ has something for you. He has something for you. I don't want any of you to feel like dead weight at this church because according to T Titus chapter two, you are profoundly not that. In fact, without you, this church can't even be a healthy church. And so older women, younger women who will be there one day and everybody else, let's see exactly what Paul says that is. Let's look together at Titus chapter two and see the personalized game plan for older women in the church. Here's where we're going. Maybe you have notes, maybe you don't, but here's the target. This morning, I want you to see four exemplary qualities. Four exemplary qualities of older women that will empower them to maximize their effectiveness for the Great Commission. I know it's a mouthful, I'll say it again. I want to look at four exemplary qualities of older women that will help empower them to maximize their effectiveness for the Great Commission. So exemplary quality number one. Older women must be otherworldly. Older women must be otherworldly. Now what that means and why that matters, we're going to get to that. But I want you to notice something in the text that is almost invisible, that you would otherwise be tempted to ignore, namely that very small little word, likewise, in the text. Look at verse 3. Paul says that older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not enslaved to much wine, teachers of what is good. See the significance there? 
if verses 1 through 10 are essentially a shepherding plan that Paul gives to Titus to help his people be godly and display Christ and maximize their lives, and it is, the likewise in the text means that elders are to be just as focused on helping older women flourish in their faith just as they would for anybody else. Because you see, the church is not a boys club or a fraternity or some man cave. Rather, what it is is a battalion of souls, men and women, washed in the Savior's blood, chosen and predestined, recruited into the most loving and dangerous cause in the universe called the Great Commission. In other words, older women, younger women who will be there one day, again, you are in the text which means Christ has something for you, which means he profoundly cares how you're doing spiritually and how you spend your days on this planet. And that raises the question, what are the Christ-exalting qualities of older women? What are the particular ways that older women can live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission? That's the question. And Paul gives four qualities that older women must display to maximize their effectiveness. And you see that the first one on the list is that they are to be reverent in their behavior. Reverent in their behavior. And you know what's cool about that word, reverent? Is that it occurs exactly one time in the entire New Testament, right here. It's not found in the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew called the Septuagint. In fact, it's not even found in any of the thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of ancient Greek writings in antiquity. Maybe Paul even made up this term. It's only found here. And what that means is, ladies, older women, you get your very own word, unique and customized just for you. And what's so profound about that word, reverent, is that it's built on two words put together to kind of give it a three-dimensional quality. The term in Greek is hieraprepes. Hieraprepes. Hieras, meaning priest or temple, and prepes, meaning fitting. You put it together, conduct, fitting, for a priest. Conduct fitting for the temple. In other words, older women are to live lives of such supernatural dignity and devotion and reverence for the living God that it's almost as if they are living in the temple itself where God himself dwells. That's the issue. In other words, it's like being a modern day Anna. Do you remember her? Luke 2 verse 37 says that even as an 84-year-old widow, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. That's what Paul is after. And we don't have a temple today, which means you don't have to serve night and day with fastings and prayers, but that same God-enthralled preoccupation with who God is is exactly what Paul is after. You see, what this is, is a woman who knows God. These are women who know that there is no fractional part of their lives that doesn't belong to Christ. He knows all. He sees all. He owns it all. In other words, to be a reverent woman means that this is the kind of woman who knows that no matter where she's standing, she is standing on holy ground. Why? Because God is there. 
And so it's clear, isn't it? Paul is not merely talking about someone's outward demeanor or their personality, but rather he's getting to the very core of who a woman is in her soul, namely that she is a woman who trembles before God as the treasure of her soul. And so older women, younger women who will be there one day, and everybody else, are you reverent in your behavior? Do you have conduct fitting for a priest? Conduct fitting for the temple? In other words, what I'm asking is, do you live even your most private moments that no one sees like God is real and that he's there and that he's the greatest treasure in the universe? And yet I think what this does is raise the question, doesn't it? How does an older woman become this way? I mean, what has got to happen in the soul of a woman like this where year after year, over decades, where eventually she becomes a walking, talking priestess of the living God? How does a woman get this way? And I think it comes as no surprise that a reverent woman is a woman who has had long, long exposure to the landscape of God's perfections from the pages of Holy Scripture. Or put it this way, a reverent woman is a woman who has a Polaroid camera for a soul. And the longer their gaze is fixed on God's glory from the Bible, the longer they are exposed to the matchless beauty of God from the Bible, the more they resemble his character and they, are, they become a picture of who God has revealed himself to be. You see, a woman is only as reverent as her view of God is profound. And so, oh, daughters of Eve, old and young and somewhere in between, what God wants for you is to be reverent. And the only way to be reverent is over time, in full scuba gear, plunging yourself daily into the depths of God's word, drinking and drinking and drinking from the ocean of his revelation. That's how you become reverent. And at this point, someone could legitimately raise the question, okay, well, that sounds good, but how does that make them more effective for the Great Commission? Because Jared, you said that a woman with these qualities will make her more effective for the Great Commission, and that's right, I did say that. Okay, so then how does one's personal view of God make them more effective for the Great Commission? And the answer is this. The most important, put it this way, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. See, there is a direct correlation between your affections for God and your usefulness to other people. The more acquainted you are with the living God, the more you will be equipped to help others endure the trials of this life. The higher up in God you climb, the more equipped you will be to heal the deepest wounds of the soul. Don't you see? Soft, non-theological cliches are a help to no one. Shallow, anemic views of God are a benefit to nobody's soul. Because you remember, don't you? You remember what Paul prayed in Ephesians 1.17? He prayed that 
the Father of glory would give to them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of himself. Colossians 1.10, he prayed for the Colossians that they would increase in their knowledge of God. 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has given to you everything pertaining to life and godliness. How did he do that? Through the true knowledge of himself. So why, ladies, why is your view of God the most important thing about you? Because the higher your view of God, the more reverent you become, and the more reverent you become, the more useful you will be. Which brings us to exemplary quality number two. Older women must not be double-tongued. Older women must not be double-tongued. You know, it's very, very interesting to me that out of all the things we see God reveal about himself in the Bible, that one of the first things that we see about him is that our God is a talking God. Isn't that true? I mean, think about it. The, the very first activity that we see God do after he creates the, the entire universe is speak. I mean, the very first words spoken in history were not spoken by a human being, but by the God who caused the universe to come into existence with words. And what that means is our words and our speech and our communication is of profound importance to God. What we say and the words we use and how we use those words has unbelievable even eternal significance. In fact, I think that if you could summarize everything the Bible has to say about our words and our speech and the things that we say, I think you could summarize it like this. Words give life. Words bring death. You choose. <laughs> but be careful. Because you contain in your mouth a concealed weapon and it has not only the power to ruin people but even to devastate entire churches. And speaking of words that bring death, those are the very kind of words that Paul says that a woman, an older, reverent, godly woman should never ever use. Look what Paul says in verse three. He says that older women are to be lots of things, not the least of which they are to be reverent in behavior, that is, they tremble before God as the treasure of their souls, always living, as it were, as if they were living in the temple itself. And second on the list, Paul says that older women are not to be, never ever should be, slanderous. Literally, the Greek word is double-tongued, like a snake. And just to show you how evil slander really is, the Greek word is diabolos. Diabolos, Diablo, it's a word for the evil one himself. It's where we get our word diabolical. See, slander is the trade of the evil one. It's his ace in the hole. It's his area of expertise. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, why slander follows immediately after being reverent? It makes total sense. Because slander is directly related to your view of God. Make no mistake, there is a direct correlation between the words that come out of your mouth and your theology of who you think God is. We slander in hushed tones. 
behind closed doors, around hidden corners in secret because we have the audacity to think that no one can hear us. And yet make no mistake, there is one who hears and he is closer to you even than your own skin. You see, no one, no one understands this better than reverent, old, or godly women who knows that when it comes to God, there's no such thing as secrets. And I think we all know what slander is and what it's designed to do. Because, make no mistake, slander is not to encourage people. It is not to benefit people. It is not to help anybody. No one in the history of slanderous conversations, either the one spreading the slander or the one hearing the slander, no one has walked away from those conversations more zealous for the kingdom. And the reason for that is because all slander is, is murder. It's verbal leprosy, oral cancer, infection spread by conversation. You see what it is, is behind the scenes character assassination. Slander is when we pour poison into the heart of another person, about another person, and our words are the poison. And the whole point of the poison, deep down, get this, is to make yourself feel superior to the person you are slandering. That's the root. Did you know that? Slander at root is a desperation move rooted in spiritual self-delusion and insanity. What I mean is in some bizarre, twisted sickness of the soul to compensate for our fear and insecurities, we slander another person all in the hopes of feeling superior to the one we are slandering. I mean, the culprit always lurking in the shadows of slander is some smug, self-righteous know-it-all who thinks they're better than other people. And unfortunately, every single person in this room has been there and done that, haven't we? And we also know by unfortunate experience that slander is by nature acidic, isn't it? In other words, when we slander, everybody loses. Nobody wins. It deteriorates friendships. It pollutes fellowship. It breeds distrust and suspicion. It polarizes the body. It paralyzes the mission. James 3 is exactly right. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, James says, and the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the entire course of our life and is set on fire by hell itself. That member is in every single one of our mouths. And so older women, 50-ish and above, younger women and everybody else, how are you doing in the area of slander? Start any fires with your tongues lately? Have you been pouring poison into someone's ears with your words lately? And yet I think the question is, isn't it? How does, why does not a reverent woman slander? Why does she not do that? 
I mean, what has happened in the soul of a reverent woman, or anyone else for that matter, where the sin of slander becomes absolutely unthinkable? I mean, what convictions do they have? What realizations have they come to? And I think there are two realizations, two reality-shaping realizations to which we all must come to not succumb to the sin of slander. In other words, we come to grips with these two things and we will not be a slanderous people. Realization number one. When we are staggered by the towering supremacy of God, and by the sheer, raw holiness of God, we will not be a slanderous people. You know why? Because no one who has truly seen the greatness of God can but also have seen their own unworthiness at the exact same time. Because you remember, don't you, what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw, when he was devastated and undone by the holiness of God. He, he saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, the seraphim, declaring that God is holy, holy, holy. And what did Isaiah say? Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. Isn't that interesting? That's the first thing he says. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. The point is, when you see the towering majesty of God, you see your own unworthiness in comparison. And when you see that, there will be no one over whom to feel superior and thus no temptation to slander them. Realization number two, we will not slander. When we come to grips with the great lengths to which God had to go to save us from eternal woe and despair. I'm gonna say that again, because you need to feel that. We will not slander when we come to grips, to the great length to which God had to go to save us from eternal woe and despair. Don't you see, had God not chosen us in eternity past, had he not awakened us by sovereign grace in regeneration, we would have never believed and been saved. And when that hits you, as it should, you will not be a slanderous person. Why? Because when you are staggered by sovereign grace in salvation, you know that there we don't have a fraction of a right to feel even a millimeter of superiority over another human being again. And that brings us to exemplary quality number three. Older women must not be slaves. Older women must not be Slaves. And by that, by that I mean slaves to alcohol or to anything else for that matter. Look at verse 3. Look what Paul says. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous. And here it is. They are not to be enslaved to much wine. Now we can tell, can't we? I mean, if we're thinking rationally about the text, Paul is not all bent out of shape about the occasional beer or, or glass of wine with dinner, is it? That, that, that is not his issue. Because again, again, biblically speaking, alcohol in and of itself is not inherently sinful, is it? 
Again, you remember from a month or two ago, you remember that I even quoted Psalm 104, verse 15, that says, unbelievably, that wine is a gift of God's providence to make your heart glad. That's what the text says. It's hilarious. hilarious. As a non-drinker, I chuckle at that verse. The Bible says wine is a gift. And yet, and yet, and I should say it this way, even the physiological effects of alcohol, to the degree that they don't impair your judgment in any way, are a gift of God to be enjoyed. And yet, and yet, permissible though it may be, the Bible pulls zero punches about the inherent dangers of alcohol doesn't it? In fact, twice, twice, Paul includes drunkenness on a list of other sins that if not repented of and crucified and killed will actually keep you from the kingdom of God. In other words, some people go to hell with a wine bottle in their hands. But again, as with elders, the issue with which Paul is concerned is, is not so much booze by itself as a beverage, but rather the heart issue lurking beneath. In fact, if you think about it, drunkenness is only one of a thousand different manifestations of a deeper heart issue that Paul is concerned about. Drunkenness is just the most obvious one. You see, the object, the... the, the Put it this way, the, the issue is not so much the object to which one is enslaved, but it's the heart issue beneath that allows one to be enslaved. But I mean, it could be anything. It could be drugs, it could be food, it could be porn, it could be, it could be video games, it could be shopping, it could be money, it could be homosexuality or work or, or exercise, you name it, by whatever a person is dominated, that is the thing to which they are willingly enslaved and for which they will sacrifice everything. You see, the hideous issue lurking beneath that Paul is concerned about is idolatry. Or more precisely, self idolatry, or even more precisely, what Paul is describing, get this now, is the idolatrous, self-indulgent pursuit of our own private pleasures at the expense or exclusion of everybody else. In other words, biblically speaking, the root issue behind drunkenness, or what the world calls addictions, is the willing abandonment of all self-control and the reckless pursuit of one's own personal lusts and cravings, no matter the cost to themselves or to anybody else. Like I mentioned a couple months ago when I talked about this issue, is this not the exact same thing we see with Adam and Eve in the garden at the beginning? It's exactly what this was. The whole future human race could have gone to hell forever, and yet they didn't give a rip about any of that. The only thing that mattered in that moment was the thing hanging on the tree and their own personal gratification. That is what Paul is after. And yet that makes me want to ask you, older women, Younger women and everybody else, do you see anything remotely resembling this in your life? Are you a slave to wine or to anything else? What I mean is, do you see the idolatrous, 
self-indulgent pursuit of your own pleasures, your own private pleasures at the expense or exclusion of everybody else? Do you see a growing obsession in your life, something other than God? Some secret pleasure that you're really, really hoping doesn't get exposed to public view. I mean, maybe it's not getting drunk necessarily, but it is something that's beginning to have a python grip on your soul and you don't know how you're going to claw your way out of it. If that remotely describes you this morning, there are two things that I need you to know that are really good news for you. Number one, what you need to know is that the elders here love you and, and we are here for you. I mean, we're not a bunch of pharaohs whipping you to make bricks without straw. No, we're, we're, we're shepherds. We are shepherds. And second, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.24 that we are workers with you for your joy. Did you know that? Elders exist for your highest joy. It's unbelievable. We, we are here to help you do whatever it takes to taste the joy of a holy life. And so if you are struggling here this morning, struggle in isolation no longer. Help us work with you for your joy, which is not found in sin, but in the Messiah who frees us from sin. Number two, if you truly belong to Christ, you need to know that there is hope for you. There's hope for you. No matter what the issue is, there, there is hope for you. If you are in Christ, defeat is not inevitable. Slavery is not inescapable. Why? Because in Christ, you have access to everything and anything you need to live a shackle-free life that puts him on display as the greatest treasure in the universe. Doesn't your soul burn to have that? But how does this work? We'll get this now. To be in Christ means, listen very carefully, that his death not only frees you from the clutches of sin's power, but it also awakens you to the superior beauty of Christ which triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin. I'm going to say that again. You need to feel this. This is the heart and soul of why the new covenant is the best news in the world. The death of Christ means not only that you are liberated from the clutches of sin's power, but that you have been awakened, awakened to the superior beauty of Christ which triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin. In other words, if you belong to Christ, you don't have to give in to the passing pleasures of sin. Why not? Because now you have tasted the real thing. In Christ, you must be holy, but not only that, you can be holy. And that brings us to exemplary quality number four. Number four, older women must be professors of glory. Older women must be professors or instructors or teachers of glory. You know, I've heard it said, and I actually agree with this, that to be a Christian, you don't have to have a good education because Christianity itself is an education. For instance, did you know that the Greek word disciple literally means a learner? 
If you are a disciple of Christ, you are a lifetime learner of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity has embedded within it its own educational structure, its own educational program, not only because pastors and teachers are formally called to preach and teach the word of God, but because every single one of you are called to teach and to disciple one another. Did you know that? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Why? For what purpose? Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's exactly what Paul calls older women to be, namely professors of glory, or as he calls them, teachers of what is good. Look again at verse three, look what Paul says. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not enslaved to much wine. Here it is. They are to be kaladidaskalas, teachers of what is good. You see that? Older women, teachers. You were called to be teachers. 50-ish and up, how you can maximize your effectiveness for the Great Commission is by, is by being teachers in the local church, not in a paid way necessarily, like you're on payroll, not even with a formal title and position in the church as a formal you know, educator in the church. No, what Paul is talking about is an organic, robust, discipling and mentoring ministry where you invest your very souls into the lives of younger women in the church. Because look at verses four and five together, or three and four together, look at verses three and four. Paul says that older women are to be lots of things, not the least of which they are to be teachers of what is good. Why? For what purpose? To what end? Verse four. In order that they should literally be urgently instructing the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober-minded, to be pure, to be workers at home, to be kind, to be submissive to their own husbands. Do you see that, older women? Your mission should you choose to accept it, and I really hope you do, because the health of the church depends upon this, but your mission is to be teachers and trainers of the young women in this church to help them be and do all that God calls them to be and do in Christ. There is literally to be an all-female discipleship faculty of teachers in every single local church. Your mission is to do faithful, intentional investment of the Word of God into the lives of other people, especially the young women in this church. Now don't panic if you don't feel like you exactly know how to do that, because before we're done, I'm going to show you a little bit of how that's done, but just so you know, if this church is going to be a healthy church that changes the world, this is one of the strategic ways that happens. Oh, women at this church, I want you to know you have at your fingertips the opportunity of a lifetime to cause ripple effects into eternity. 
And notice the implications in the text. Paul doesn't give a lot of detail here because it doesn't have to. He and Titus have had this conversation dozens and dozens of times in their 20-year ministry history. So he doesn't give us a lot of detail. But notice, I think what Paul's wanting us to do is fill in the implication. He's expecting us to fill in the blanks. For instance, if, if it is to be that older women are to be taught by, if the younger women are to be taught by the older women, what does that imply? If they have to be taught, what does that imply? It implies that what all women are called to be and do is not intuitive, nor is it automatically downloaded into their souls at conversion. It wasn't automatic for you. It wasn't intuitive to you. It's not automatic or intuitive to them. They have to be taught those things. They have to have someone come alongside them and teach them those things. I mean, do you see what this is? What we're talking about here is great commission chain reaction. This is a generational impact. This isn't even just you making disciples. Get this. It's you being a disciple maker who makes disciple makers, who makes disciple makers. Do you see? You get to train older women, the next generation of women who will then go on to do the same, who will then go on to do the same. And all it requires is time and intentionality and dependent prayer and an open Bible. And maybe you're thinking, okay, well, that sounds good. Teachers of the young women, sounds great. What am I supposed to teach them? What's my material? What's my curriculum? What's my lesson plan? What am I supposed to say? Look at the text. Paul says, teach them what is good. Teach them what is good. And what is good? Anything in the pages of Scripture is good. Anything they need to live a life of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission is perfect. You've got your curriculum. You've got the material. You have the word of God, which is the most lethal instrument of change known to man. You have everything you need. Oh, older women of this church, counterintuitive though it may be, what makes you a great teacher is not your experience or your expertise, but the life-transforming power of Holy Scripture. And specifically, what are you supposed to teach the younger women? What, what, what are they supposed to know? Look again at verses 4 and 5. Older women teach them to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober-minded, to be pure, to be workers at home, to be kind, to be submissive to their own husbands. Why? In order that the word of God should not be reviled, literally blasphemed. So what all those things mean, we're going to get to next week. But I think that what this does is raise the question, doesn't it? Well, how do I do this? J Jared, we hired you to teach us how to do this stuff. Tell us how to make disciples. Okay, I'll do my best. Everyone turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll end with this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. 
Because, because guess what we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12? Guess what we find in that text? We find a paradigm, a template, a methodology for how to make disciples in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 8 through 12, Paul tells us how one person in need of grace can come alongside another person in need of grace and help them grow in maturity in Christ. And so make, to make disciples, you need five things. You need to do what Paul did for the Thessalonians, five things. Number one, to make disciples, you need affection. You need affection. In other words, you need to find a younger woman. You need to love her and care for her as if she were your own family because look what Paul says in verses 7 and 8. And notice very carefully the language he uses. But we were gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, being so fond in affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also literally our own souls because you had become beloved to us. See, discipleship is not just a class or a seminar or a program. It is life on life, loving the one in whom you invest the word of God with profound affection. Number two, to make disciples, you need exertion. You need exertion. Look at verse nine. Notice his language. Paul says, for you remember, brothers, notice, our labor and our toil, working night and day among you. Do you see that? Making disciples is not for the faint of heart. It is not a lazy man's game, nor a lazy woman's game. That word labor literally means to bruise and to beat into subjection. Paul and his comrades had to beat their own bodies into subjection as they ministered to the Thessalonians. Why? Because making disciples is really, really hard. It takes time. You kind of have to have a thick skin. They don't always want what you're selling. It, 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 you have to be selfless. You have to, you have to die to self. They, they wearied themselves to, with, to, to the point of exhaustion as they invested into the lives of other people. They prepared beforehand. They prayed afterwards. They didn't just wing it. They had a plan because it's hard and it's messy to disciple but so worth it in the end. Number three, to make disciples, you need instruction. You need instruction. And by that I mean you need to give them the word of God. Again, ladies, you don't have to be very profound or interesting or have amazing experiences or great anecdotes or really clever things to say. What you need to give them is the word. That is the power that changes and transforms people's lives. We can see it in, in verses eight and nine where twice Paul says that they gave to these people the gospel. They gave them the word of God. That is where the power lies. You don't have to have any extraordinary discipling gift this morning. All you have to do is meet with them and bring the Bible and open the book and look at the text, read what it says. You need to let the tiger of truth out of its cage and let it do the work. Number four, to make disciples, you need imitation. You need imitation, as in you are the one who needs to be imitated. 
Look, what, look at verse 10. Look what Paul says. He says, you are witnesses, and so is God. How godly and righteously and blamelessly we were among you who believed. Don't you see? Don't just tell them to live a radical, transformed life for Christ. Show them a radical, transformed life for Christ. Let them see you in your routine. Let them see what you do. If you have a husband, let them see you interact with him. If you have kids or grandkids, let them see you interact with them. Let them hear you pray. Let them hear you repent of your sin. And, and if, you, if you happen to be one of those people who watch the kids of, of the younger women and you, you do babysitting for them, continue to do that. But when they get home, don't just leave and go on about your day. Take 10 minutes after they get home and, and sit them at the kitchen table or bring them outside on the porch and open the word with them and give them something for your souls. If that happened all across the board, we would be a radically different church in three months. Number five, to make disciples, you need exhortation. You need exhortation. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says, Paul says, even as you know, as a father would his own children, we exhorted you. We encouraged you. We implored you to walk worthily of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Don't you see? Making disciples is not just being buddies. It is to be friends, but it's not just friends. It's not just loose, unstructured hangout time. There is an agenda it is intentional. You see, making disciples means that sometimes, maybe a lot of times, the person you're discipling needs loving correction and instruction and teaching and encouragement, and they need hope from the scriptures. Your job is not to crush them or humiliate them, but to repair them with the word of God and to exhort them to walk worthy of God who calls them into his own kingdom and glory. That is how you make disciples. Is that it? Well, no. There's more to it than that, of course. But it's certainly not less than that. And so, daughters of Eve, I close with this. I really mean it this time. Um, I want you to grow old gracefully. And by that I mean, biblically speaking, that you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and you spend your last decades and years and even months on this planet investing the word of God into the lives of other people, especially to the younger women in this church. So that when it's their turn to invest into the younger women, they will know exactly how that works. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for your word. You love your church. You love this church. And you want this church to grow. And, and Lord, we have so many things against us, oh Lord. Namely, that all of us are imperfect. And we desperately need your grace, oh Lord. And so we look to you. We look to you and we ask for your help to be a body growing, thriving in, in abundant, organic, healthy body life. Let us love and care for one another. Let us speak the truth to one another in love. And Lord, as we are about to leave and, and go to a picnic together, I pray that that would be just a sweet time together. So Lord, we thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen.